Welcome to the Filling the Pearl podcast. I'm Greg Ashman, and with me for this episode is Sonia Cabell, Assistant Professor in the School of Teacher Education and the Florida Center for Reading Research at Florida State University. Welcome, Sonia, to the show. Thank you for having me, Greg. It's a great pleasure to have you on here. And uh, as during the course of the show, uh, we'll explore some of the, the, the reasons why I invited you to, to speak today, because um, I think your perspective on reading research is something that's going to uh, resonate with um, the the people the, the, the people listening to this. Okay, so uh, I always like to have a little bit of narrative, a little bit of background on the people on the podcast. So I understand that you used to be a second grade teacher. Could you tell me a little about your background, why you chose to be a teacher, and then why you later decided to go into research? Yeah, so I've always wanted to be a teacher since I was about 12 years old. Um, I always kind of had that in my heart. I always had the desire. Um, I always loved school, loved everything about it. So uh, becoming a teacher wasn't much of a stretch for me. Um, I, uh, I did my undergraduate work at Smith College and studied education and child study. Um, interestingly enough, my beginnings um, as a teacher was being trained as a whole language teacher in the 90s. Um, and then I taught second grade. Uh, and I, then I also served as a reading coach or reading first during the reading first era in the United States um, in the early 2000s, both in Oklahoma and in Virginia. Wow. So whole language. What, what, what was that like being trained in whole language? What, what, what were the key messages that you were given about reading from, from that, that training? Well, I think that some of the key messages, um, there was a lot of wonderful things about the school that I was a, a part of. It was actually considered a, a very you know, high quality um, school and high quality placement for teachers, for student teachers. Um, however, for reading, some of the messages um, were really around um, phonics as being incidentally taught versus explicitly and systematically taught. Uh, there was a great deal of emphasis on, on meaning that students were making from texts and dis rich discussion and literature of authentic texts. Um, you know, so I, I think that, uh, you know, one of the takeaways for me over the years has really been that students who are already have come into school um, decoding or with the propensity to decode and kind of self-teach in that area uh, seem to be ones that benefited from this approach versus those that really needed the explicit phonics instruction. And as you know, so many children absolutely need that explicit phonics instruction. Um, and that's, that's what we know from, you know, accumulation of, of uh, you know, decades of research. So your, your views on that obviously changed over the, the years since you trained. So what right. precipitated that? What caused you to reevaluate the whole language approach? Right. So I think being in the field and seeing children struggle with reading and not really knowing how to help the child struggling with reading. So I think of a second grader that I had um, who could not read, could not decode. And we would do practices that we thought were helping her, like drilling her with flashcards and things like this. And it was not helping her. She would not be able to retain the, the knowledge from one day to the next of the, the, the words we were trying to just kind of flash and learn by quote sight, right? Um, 
And I realized that I really didn't understand how to help a student like that. Um, I went on to do my master's um, in reading at uh, in Oklahoma um, and um, while I was teaching and I learned more, uh, but it really, you know, and, and my, so over time, as I learned more, my thoughts changed. And then in my doctoral study in particular, um, it really solid the understanding of the science of reading and what we know about the research really was solidified. And as many of um, my own students um, experience uh, when they start doctoral training, I also experienced, which was you realize that every the whole way you've been teaching, there isn't scientific evidence for it. And maybe some of it is actually wrong, like what I was doing with that child. Yeah. Um, and and you it kind of blows your mind. Did it make you angry? <laughs> I think in some ways I was upset with my uh, with some of the training I had yeah. had uh, in my especially in my master's uh, program um, because that was after the National Reading Panel report came out. Um, so I, I think though. Um, yeah, it, it did. It made me think that there was just this big disconnect between yeah. what we are doing in the field and what uh, what I learned um, it, or what I learned and what science says, really. That's where the yeah. disconnect was. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's. I asked that question because it's what it sort of motivates me, um, not anger, but well, to an extent, like when, in my early part of my career, I, I tried to make as a science teacher, I tried to make inquiry learning work and I couldn't um and I you res, res, resorted to a a form of explicit instruction which I now know was not optimal um but I didn't know what optimal explicit instruction was and I just thought that I was doing it wrong and I felt guilty and then later on when I started to read the research I realized that um the, the evidence did support explicit instruction but of a certain kind and I felt quite angry, I think is the right word, uh, that I hadn't been aware of that earlier and I hadn't been able to use that in my teaching. Um, and it, it's one of the motivations for doing what I do now. So that's why I asked yeah. that. Uh, well, that's, I think that's terrific. And I think we have to remember that it's not the fault of the teacher. No. Because the teacher doesn't, hasn't necessarily had the training um, on the what the science says in this Absolutely. area, and I don't think that I don't think it's changed. That for me, my my undergraduate work was in the late nine was in the nineties, and then my early early master's work was in the early two thousands. But twenty years later, I still think that there is a disconnect between um, what teachers are learning and and the science. Absolutely. So you mentioned the uh, National Reading Panel um, report uh, that was published in the year two thousand. Um, what do you think the impact of the, the publication of that report has been on, on schools, like the classrooms in, in the US? Right. I think let's talk about the, the, the good impacts and yeah. maybe the not so good impacts. Yeah. So I think, uh, I think that the National Reading Panel report and what ensued after that of um, reading first and then early reading first um, really solidified those five, the big five in people's minds the importance of instruction in phonemic awareness, phonics, fluency, vocabulary comprehension. That became kind of drilled in everybody's mind. It became a part of curricula. Yeah. I remember seeing curricula that were in the 90s and then after the National Reading Panel report, seeing what the curricula looked like then. And everybody had uh, at least made the effort to align it to those areas. Yeah. Um, and so I think that that was a really good thing. Um, 
I think one of the things that inadvertently happened, I think there were two major in, things that inadvertently happened that I kind of focus on. Um, one is around um, writing instruction. So writing instruction inadvertently took a back seat to reading and okay. teachers didn't see the connection between reading and writing. Yep. And so I still think that that is a persistent problem. Yeah. Um, but I think another really important issue uh, that has happened is that the reading, the what we call the English language arts block in the United States, yeah. um, took ended up being lengthened to hours. To, it was at some point it was like two hours and a half, or two and a half hours, or two hours and fifteen minutes, and it's no less than ninety minutes now. And I, I'm not saying that that's bad, but what happened was that it's at least in the primary grades, it pushed out the content areas yeah. where kindergarten through second grade wasn't having science or social studies instruction and, or not in a meaningful way. Yeah. And so English language arts became just really uh, lengthened. And so I, I do think that those kinds of subject areas took a back seat. And lots of sort of strategy training, reading comprehension strategy training and that sort of thing. Right. And, 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 a lot of it, right? Yeah. And also the idea of activating background knowledge. Yeah. Um, so there's a whole host of research on the importance of knowledge and the background knowledge we have to our reading. Yeah. Right. And nobody argues that our knowledge is important to what we, to understand what we read. Um, however, the takeaway from the National Reading Panel report was around activating knowledge and not necessarily building knowledge. Um, and the difference here is that when you activate background knowledge, the teacher is um, activating something that the, the child already has, you know, the, but if you don't have the background knowledge to understand a given text, you can, no amount of activating will help me understand what I ha have, what I don't already have, you know? Yeah. Um, so building that knowledge is important. It, it's interesting. I, I I'm not obviously I'm not an early grade uh, literacy teacher, so it, it it must it must be an odd thing when early grade literacy teachers are trying to teach this activating background knowledge, um, and the kids don't have the knowledge. Surely there must be a bit of a bit of dissonance there. People must think, well, oh, wait a bit, there's no knowledge to activate. What what do we need to do about that? It must be a strange experience. I think that on the spot, teachers try to then build that background hmm. in order to understand the given topic. But one of the issues with the topics is that oftentimes in an English language arts curriculum or what's read aloud to yeah. young children bounces from topic to topic yeah. and doesn't deepen knowledge. It is it, um, often has been kind of an afterthought versus building a curriculum around that kind of knowledge base. So... Yeah, so uh, going back to my um, question, on uh, my original question, I don't think um, you actually said why it was you decided to go into research. Okay. So, yeah, let me go back to that. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I, I'm a lifelong learner. I love yeah. learning. I I uh, I was became so curious about it. And when my husband, um, he was in the army, and then yeah. we had moved to Alaska and to Oklahoma. And then we were moving to Virginia. He got out of the army. We were moving to Virginia and we were looking for a place to live uh, in Charlottesville, Virginia. And I opened up the newspaper 
and I saw um, Marsha Invernizzi's name. And she is an author of a book that I used um, in when I was teaching second grade yeah. uh, called Words Their Way. And, um, and so I was so excited and I met her and she was the one who kind of ushered me into my doctoral study at the University of Virginia. Um, so it wasn't something, unlike students I have now, the yeah. kind of more savvy students who, yeah. who really like know what they want to do and then go do that. I yeah. kind of stumbled into, into it. I was always interested in reading. I think reading is important for life. And I did my master's in reading and I just wanted to continue learning um, you know, about uh, research on reading. And when I was in my doctoral program, it's when I decided that I, this is the career I want to make for myself, um, you know, to be a researcher. Right. Yeah. I, I, I had a, I, I, I'm doing a PhD at the moment. Well, it's, I, I'm writing up at the moment and it's like pushing water uphill. It really is. But um, uh, I got into that. Um, similarly, I never thought I would, but I got interested in research and I got interested in cognitive load theory. Um, and then I looked up John Sweller uh, at the University of New South Wales and I got in contact with him about a blog post. And I think he actually suggested, oh, why don't you do a, a master's or a PhD? And that, that's how I got into that, really. So it wasn't it's it's a, it's a if you're interested, the things just sort of take control of themselves, don't they? Right. Sometimes our paths are very secure, circuitous, right? Yeah. They don't we don't always make a straight line to something and we have interesting stops along the way you know in my doctoral work um my um dissertation advisor was laura justice and she studied preschool um literacy and i hadn't taught preschool so my experience had all been k3 but when i met her and started working in her research lab i became amazed and convinced of the need for preventing later reading difficulties. And if you can make small shifts early on in a child's life in their language and literacy development, you might be able to have a greater impact and um, catch children before they fall as Joe Torgerson, um, the founder of my, uh, my research lab, the Florida Center for Reading Research put it. Yes, it's the parking the ambulance at the top of the cliff rather than the bottom. <laughs> uh, I think that's Pam Snow. I don't know who came up with that one. Maybe Pam Snow. Now, um, so uh, you, you've already mentioned the term the science of reading, which is quite a, in some circles, quite a contentious term. Um, a group called the National Education Policy Center in the US released a statement last year where they argued against the use of it. Uh, they said it was, there's no settled science of reading. And, um, and then Dan Willingham, I think, published a blog saying, well, there's no settled science of anything that's not how science works um what does the term mean to you um and why do you think it's a valid or and or useful term i do think it's a useful term but i think that you um you hit the head on the nail when you were you were saying about the definition of it really then when you're talking to somebody you need to understand how they define it because yeah. if it is everything then it's nothing yeah right and different people have different uh, views of what the science of reading is. So um, in, a, uh, in a paper that my colleagues from the Florida Center of Reading Research and I put out in, that in the special issue of the Reading Research Quarterly um, Journal in 2020, um, we, I'm gonna read to you how we define the science of reading. We say that the science of reading is a phrase representing the accumulated knowledge about reading, reading development, and best practices for reading instruction obtained by the use of the scientific method. 
Um, many methodologies can be part of the scientific method. So it's not just saying uh, only quantitative methods, but there is a there is an understanding of what different types of methodologies, how it builds the knowledge base. You know, so I think it's um, really important to define it. And I, I think most of the time- mm -hmm. No, go on. Oh, no, I think most of the time in the media, um, the science of reading is equated with decoding instruction, but that is not, um, um, researchers would not view it that way. No, and I think the, um, the National Education Policy Center report uh, conflated it with um, sis, uh, systematic phonics instruction, uh, which is uh, part of um, what you might um, term the science of reading. Well, the science of reading would point towards that being an effective uh, approach, um, but that's not the sum of it. And we've got things like the simple view, we've got lots of other things that factor into that. And I think, the, the other problem is this, uh, the public perception of science. So um, the, there's lots of misunderstandings, I think, about science and what science is. Um, and the fact that science is basically about making models. Uh, the models aren't true, uh, but they're, they're good for, they're good in as far as they can predict the results of experiments and we're constantly refining our models. Uh, and it's not a certain process. Um, and yet I think when people hear the term science of reading, they think well, there's this monolith that says you must do X, Y, Z, um, and then they object to that. I wonder whether that's part of it. I think it is. I think that there's a lot of misunderstanding and, and certainly um, many of the media representations has really focused on phonics instruction uh, in the United States in particular, um, quite, uh, you know, forcefully. Um, so I, I can understand um, why uh, there would be a pushback against that. If you're enjoying this podcast, then please consider leaving a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. It will help people find the show. Please also share a link on social media. You can find the Filling the Pale blog at fillingthepale.substack.com and the archives at gregashman.wordpress.com. If you like what you see there, please also share on social media. One of the things I think that it's worth exploring is um, the difference between uh, learning to read and reading to learn, uh, both of which occur, um, well, simultaneously, but there's, there's, there's a shift from one to the other. Could you explain a little bit about the difference between the two? Right. Um, a lot of people think about, based on Jean Charles' work, um, a lot of people think about uh, reading as um, learning to read in the early grades and then reading to learn, like in third grade and up. Yeah. Uh, but I think that this is a, a kind of misinterpretation of the intention. I don't think that it's meant to say that children shouldn't be reading to learn all along, meaning yeah. in the early grades, children are, quote, reading to learn. A lot of times that takes the form of listening uh, to learn. Yeah. So reading aloud to children. Um, so it's, it's and, and they're like, you know, enriching their language skills, talking about having rich discussions around content. All of these things are really important because by the time then, you know, where, when you get to, to fourth grade and you realize children aren't really comprehending very well, uh, it's often uh, too late to enrich those language skills that should have been enriched from the very, very beginning of schooling. So this is like- I think it's a false dichotomy. Yeah, so it's like uh, taking into account the fact that 
um, oral language comprehension precedes um, reading comprehension so that the little children can understand things that people say to them uh, 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 that are more complex than the things that they can read themselves. But we need to use that to build that oral language comprehension so that later when they can read equivalent texts, they can, it, it, am I on the right lines there? Right. So just think about what a child needs to know in third grade. So think about the vocabulary and the complexity of the vocabulary that occurs in a third grade reading comprehension text. Um, and these might be words like, um, here's some examples, spouting, fraying, um, nutrients, scorched. Those aren't necessarily words that I use in my everyday language when I talk to my six-year-old. Yeah. I'm like, have your nutrients, darling. But yeah. they are words that he hears when I read books aloud to him, Yeah. right? And if he's exposed to the language of books and the language is prized in the language of school, the language of books and the language of school are, you know, kind of go hand in hand and are known as academic language, um, then then when he gets to those words, when he reads those words on his own, he's going to have it in his lexicon. He's already going to know what that is. Um, so it's really important to understand that the words that we use in everyday language are not only just the words, but the way we put sentences together, our syntax, things like this, it's much less complex than in written language. And so even in a simple book that you read aloud to your five or six-year-old, uh, that language is more complex than our conversations that we have with one another. So it's important to know um, that and to, and, and to have students and children listening to texts read aloud, um, a variety of texts read aloud that are more complex than what they read. And, and I was going to ask you about the difference between academic language development compared to reg regular language development, but I think that that's what you're talking about there really, isn't it? It is. And Academic, you know, academic language can be defined as the formal communication structure and words that are common in books in school. Yeah. That's how the Institute of Education Sciences IES practice guide um, from 2016 defines academic language. And then academic language skills are those skills that enable students to use and comprehend academic language. And those skills include inferential language skills, being able to discuss topics beyond the immediate context narrative language skills, which is both fiction and non-fictional, and, ac and academic vocabulary knowledge and syntactical knowledge. So those, those pieces are um, very important to expose children to um, early on. So does this pose, um, I've been just trying to be a little bit controversial here, does this pose a challenge to the simple view of reading? If the simple view of reading, which uh, I will characterize probably very poorly as decoding multiplied by oral language comprehension uh, is what determines reading ability. Um, if our oral language comprehension is just what we are exposed to implicitly by talking to people, then um, that won't work, will it? Because we don't, we won't have enough of this academic uh, language knowledge uh, to be able to understand the text that we decode. Does that make sense? It does, yeah, it, it does make sense. But I think that these language, um, academic language is part of what goes into that linguistic comprehension or the language comprehension part of the simple view. So it's part of language. 
So it's not that these skills are wholly different than oral language. Yeah. It's that these, these uh, are, are a little bit more complex skills um, than, than um, the skills, than the language we speak, which children learn very naturally, the, you know, the language that we're, we speak. And so um, I think it's part of that bucket of language comprehension, including knowledge as well, it's a contributor. I think of those things as contributors. And I think we don't know as much about that LC side the C side of the of the equation as we do the decoding. So it's if someone were to take the simple view and and say, well, we've got to teach decoding, and then uh, the uh, oral language component, comprehension component, linguistic comprehension component will take care of itself. They'll pick it up implicitly. That would be mistaken because we do need to be intentional about making sure that kids are exposed orally to words like nutrients. To, to various things like that. So th there are implications um, for that side of the uh, reading rope, as it were, that we need to be intentionally teaching. Absolutely. Um, because remember, the equation is that reading, comprehen reading comprehension yeah. equals D times C, right? So if reading comprehension is the end goal and children have to be reading the text themselves, it requires more than just the ability to code words. Those words have to actually be in their lexicon and they have to know when you put it together, what it means. And so some of those, and like I said, that it's different in the language of books and the language of what we, in what we speak are different. Um, and so it's really important to um, help children understand those things um, as well as the text structure in the books, right? It's really different in terms of different genre of books, how that text structure unfolds. So helping students understand those pieces are important for their reading comprehension too. And you talked um, earlier about this, the sort of random nature of the way that texts are selected for um, reading comprehension strategy instruction. Um, are you, would you suggest that we need to be maybe a little bit more um, planned and intentional and maybe say, okay, we're going to introduce students to some words that they might find that are slightly scientific um, for a few weeks, or we're going to introduce them to it, 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 what they tier two, tier three vocabulary words. How, how would you suggest that we, we need to think about that? Well, I think about it in terms of what do approaches that integrate um, knowledge building and literacy, those approaches that are successfully at doing that what are they doing? What are some common features among those approaches? So that's the way I have addressed this issue. And, um, but, and you're right that a lot of times it is skipping around in a lot of um, reading programs. Although I think there's more attention now than there used to be post common core state standards, post 2010, when it elevated kind of the idea of um, knowledge building uh, in English language arts was elevated a bit at that time and that many districts um, in the United States began to incorporate content-rich English language arts approaches and curriculum developers began to develop these approaches. Um, and, and we could talk about that in a few minutes, but kind of some of the features that some of the content-rich approaches um, in English language arts have that are in common um, are things like planning units around content concepts so instead of uh, a theme that might be like 
we're all special or something yeah. like this yeah. that go get, you know, over the course of three or four weeks, it might be, um, kindergartners might be learning about plants over the course of three or four weeks where that knowledge builds um, over time. And um, the, the number of concepts would vary for a given curriculum in, in these approaches. Um, but this idea that students are, you're actually actively building some knowledge and you choose texts that are conceptually coherent text sets that they, they are a building knowledge of a particular topic deliberately. Um, and again, those texts often are read alouds in the early grades and they are more complex than what students can read, often a couple of grade levels more complex than what students read on their own. Um, and then there's also an element of discussion and writing focused on building knowledge. So the, the discussion um, that you have before, during and after reading, we know from research that those discussions, those conversations are related to vocabulary and language learning um, and really important that what happens outside of the text, what we call extra textual talk, but also the, the writing pieces. If you, if you focus that discussion on content and you focus the writing responding to that content, those seem to be some of the features in these uh, programs. And the last one is teaching relationships among words around the concept. So you were saying, how do you go about choosing the words? And in these kinds of program, programs or approaches that have been researched, um, they tend to choose the words that are both general purpose, which is those, those tier two types of high mileage words and the content specific, like the tier three types of words. Um, and then they tend to expose children and teach relationships among words. Um, so that, that looks different than, um, than texts that are unrelated to one another um, or when, when, uh, when it's uh, a curriculum leads with strategy instruction yeah. versus content. It's very interesting how you answered that question. So, and I think it, it's, there's an insight into the dis the discussion we had about the science of reading, I I, I said, well, what, what should we do? How should we do this? And I offered you to uh, I offered you the opportunity to just say, well, we should do X Y Z. But what you said is, well, what we need to do is we need to look at um, programs that are successful. Um, and then you you mentioned some of the features of those those kinds of programs. And I think that's very interesting. We in education we have a lot of people that are prepared to stand up and tell us exactly what they reckon we should do. Right. But the scientific approach is different. And it's to say, well, hang on a minute, let's just look at what's more successful. The, the, the other thing that occurred to me is, um, and I don't know what you think about this, but a, a lot of um, the time uh, in, a, in a classroom, you might see students reading different texts to each other. And sometimes that would be justified on the basis, well, this kid is interested in plants, whereas this kid is interested in wrestling or whatever. Um, but if if they're doing that, um, you can't then have a whole class discussion, which you are indicating is probably quite important. Um, it's not just reading the text, it's talking about the text, it's having conversations about it. So it, it strikes me as it would suggest that it's quite important that we're all reading the same things. You know, in um, so... Yes, I want to. I want to. I want to answer the question, but then I also want to circle back to your yeah. point about um, sure. the science of reading. But um, yeah, so when when my colleague Kajin Huang and I, um, and along with Rachel Joyner, 
uh, conducted a meta-analysis of integrated literacy and uh, knowledge building approaches, whether they were in English language arts or whether they were in science or social studies time period, like, um, but that are integrated. Um, we looked at those and, that had and, and found that um, studies, um, the meta-analysis showed that approaches in general impacted um, vocabulary that children were learning, but not their generalized vocabulary, and also um, comprehension of uh, things that students were learning, and also generalized comprehension. So they had both proximal and effects of that were proximal and distal to what students were learning. Um, but again, if you just um, kind of look at what those studies are doing, and the I don't I don't remember one of them having an approach like you mentioned. Yeah. which was everybody read their own text because it's really difficult. Now, there were approaches where children were reading different texts on the same topic yeah. and able to engage. Um, so you do see some variation in, a, in approaches like that, um, but you don't see generally everybody reading their own uh, thing that they've self-selected. Yeah. Um, so... I wanted to talk about that paper. So uh, it's you've mentioned it. Uh, you recently published it with your colleague Hei Jin Huang, and uh, you discussed the idea in that paper um, of uh, deliberately attempting to build children's background knowledge in order to boost their reading comprehension and what that looks like. Could you tell me a little bit about how how that paper came about? Yeah. So um, so I. Uh, I'm the principal investigator of a research grant that's studying the core knowledge language arts knowledge strand curriculum. Yeah. And this curriculum, and we're studying in the early grades, um, this curriculum is one of the few in that space um, of widely used programs. There's about four or five of them now in the early grades um, that are, that are is a, a, what I call a content rich English language arts yeah. approach or curriculum. Um, where they're trying to deliberately infuse content into um, the, the reading instruction. And this strand of the curriculum is separate from their skills or phonics strand. So we were just testing the knowledge strand and schools used their regular phonics approach, um, which by the way, varied greatly among schools um, because schools, uh, some both districts we were in called themselves a balanced literacy district. Um, which a lot, which is modern terminology for um, things on the more whole language side, but not yeah. completely like the yeah. whole language, right? So we, you. So, we the, get so, so these are districts that are using core knowledge curriculum, but are saying that they're doing balanced literacy. Well, they're a balanced literacy district, so they're yeah. what I'm saying is their phonics instruction varied from school to school. Okay. We were testing the um, language, uh, the core knowledge language arts. Um, curriculum. Yeah. And so um, in, in two different districts, so we ran two trials and in two different districts, half of the schools were randomly assigned to, uh, to use the core knowledge language arts program starting yeah. in kindergarten. And the other half did their business as usual practices of literacy and content instruction. And so this paper came about because we were wanting to make a case for building uh, the importance of knowledge building in comprehension yeah. in that there's more that goes into that C and the, the R equals D times C 
there's more than goes into that goes into the sea than just language skills that not it's important that knowledge the role of knowledge be acknowledged <laughs> acknowledged <laughs> um, sorry um you know more widely uh researchers acknowledge that role but it isn't always discussed uh, but is more popularized now than it used to be um, but we wanted to um, really say, what is the evidence for this? And so in that paper, we lay down not only our meta-analytic findings um, from the research, but we also talk about our preliminary findings from the Core Knowledge Language Arts uh, randomized control trials. Um, and one thing I wanna say about this body of research yep. is that, um, when you think about what is compelling evidence, yep. what is not compelling evidence, and what is promising but not yet compelling evidence in the science of reading, this uh, because of the the you have to think about the accumulation of uh, research over time. That's part of the science of reading, right? Converging yep. evidence, and in this space about integrating literacy and knowledge building, this is promising but not yet compelling. It's moving toward that. We don't have enough kinds of studies yeah. um, in this area, but what is happening, what we are seeing is very promising in terms of children's language. So why, just going back right back to basics here, why would, uh, in, in, in theory, like what's the hypothesis behind uh, the idea that building knowledge would improve reading comprehension? So knowledge plays a critical role in our ability to understand what we read, understand the topic what we read, to fill in the gaps uh, and make inferences. Um, when authors write, they don't write, every, it would be too boring to read something that uh, was, at where every detail was laid out for you. You approach it with an overall mental model of what's going on in the text, right? You create this mental model and that you are integrating what the text actually says with what you already know to continue your mental model, to build your mental representation of what's going on. And so without that background knowledge, it's hard to both understand what you're reading and then it's hard to learn from what you're reading. So the role of knowledge is really critical it's a critical piece um, in understanding, not only what we're reading, but what we're listening to. So how come we can't just rely on reading comprehension strategies? I mean, I know, uh, I, th I think we, we both agree that the research is pretty compelling, uh, to use your phrase, for the eff uh, efficacy of um, teaching children reading comprehension strategies, but why are they not enough. Why, why, why will they not help us unlock um, content that we, we, we otherwise wouldn't understand? Why do we need this extra element of knowledge building? Right. And, I, and like you said, I think it's a both and proposition. Yep. I think it's reading comprehension strategies um, have, you know, our, our research base and show efficacy. Um, but then, but in order to summarize something or to understand the main idea, Knowing something about it is, you know, from even a common sense standpoint, knowing something about it is essential. Yeah. All reading and all reading theories 
in comprehension have a knowledge component. So it's not that, I don't think that it's, that there is anybody saying that knowledge is not an important piece or um, of the reading puzzle. But I think that there is a debate about how much reading comprehension strategies to do or whether to do it at all. And I think some people say, um, we're all in or we're all out. Um, but I think, I think that research would show that both um, have, a, have a place. And the question would be, how much should you be doing of comprehension strategies, uh, um, you know, and looking at the research on the um, kind of the duration or the the length of time needed to be spent on strategies with and thinking about a knowledge building approach. So I think that putting those two together is important. What do you make of this argument? You sometimes see um, uh, where people say, "Oh well, uh, we we shouldn't be teaching all this content now. We shouldn't be teaching." Uh, children all these facts because any facts they need they can get off the internet they can google them uh, instead we should be teaching them skills uh, what what's your response I, I can kind of anticipate it but what's your response to that argument well I think personally I think that the knowledge building approaches uh, and particularly Edie Hirsch who was the founder yeah. of the Core Knowledge Foundation and um I think that he's been given a bad rap and his curriculum has been seen as uh not, not the CKLA curriculum, not by people who know the curriculum, yeah. but his ideas have been viewed historically as just teaching kids facts. Yeah. And I think that that is really um, a misrepresentation because if you look at the core knowledge language arts curriculum, um, which it, it's, it's not about teaching memorization of facts. Uh, you know, I think that this is perpetuated in certain studies. There was a recent study out of uh, England, I believe, uh, by C and colleagues um, that purported to test the um, core knowledge, um, the core knowledge curriculum. Yeah. But it looked, and when I, um, my, my colleague, Kei Jin Huang and Rachel Joyner and I coded carefully the intervention components of that study. And it looked for our meta-analysis. And yeah. um, we had problems with the not only with the method of the the study, but also the the fact that they called it a test of that core knowledge program. Yeah. Things, um, like it, it did not look anything like the core knowledge program. It looked more like facts. Yeah. And so I think that there is some sort of mixing up um, around the ideas uh, that came out of that uh, the, the you know the work by Edie Hirsch. Is that the one I've written? Is that the one by the Education Endowment Foundation? Um, the uh, one where at all um i believe possibly it so they the one i'm thinking of um and i think it's only so i think it probably is the same trial they uh taught this core knowledge curriculum however that whatever that looked like and then uh, they gave a standardized reading assessment but the standardized reading assessment was not in the same context uh, of the core knowledge that they taught and the actual program developers said, well, can we give a bespoke reading comprehension assessment that's in the context of what of the knowledge that we've taught the students? And the researcher said, well, no, that would be unfair. So they essentially tested that whether, you know, and I'm making this up, but knowledge of trees would help you read a text about um, wrestling or something. Yeah, um, which, and some people argue that, you know, you teach children knowledge and it should transfer to other types of yeah. knowledge. However, um, that's the difference between a proximal assessment and, yeah. a, and a more generalized assessment. Um, 
that, uh, that those topics are really important. But I think more than that, we shouldn't be calling this a test of the of core knowledge approach. And I'm not a developer of the core knowledge yeah. curriculum. I, I don't have a horse in the race of whether core knowledge language arts works. It was doing something different in the space. It's just misrepresented in that particular study. So I think that's a text of the curriculum that they created. Yeah, that they based on what they believe to be the principles. But when you look at actually what core knowledge, the core knowledge language arts program, which is the language arts program that came out of the core knowledge work, it looks really different. Okay. Now, in your um, in your paper with Heijin Huang, you report on an intervention study, which you basically you've sort of outlined already a little bit, Mm -hmm. but could you just um, explain what what you found, what what the the main findings of that were? So um, the study, the intervention took place over uh, an academic semester. So it was really January through May um, with some, with a soft, what we called a soft start with teachers starting to do some of the lessons in December to get to know the curriculum. and uh, teachers were given um, some uh, light coaching supports. Um, they were they met with a, a facilitator um, to plan the next two weeks of instruction. Um, and uh, what we found was uh, not only well, we definitely found that students learned the words you taught them. <laughs> surprise, surprise. <laughs> um, and that, uh, that's what I mean by proximal, right? Yeah. The word proximal to the intervention. We also found that um, students learn the knowledge you taught them. Um, But importantly, we also saw transfer to those more generalized measures in terms of their expressive vocabulary and science knowledge, both measured through the Woodcock-Johnson tests of achievement. That was surprising to me because it was only after a semester that that more generalizable knowledge was impacted. Um, I would have thought that, you know, originally we had planned to continue this study over multiple years, the intervention over multiple years, because as you know, language and knowledge take time to build. Yeah. And um, so this this curriculum incorporated, integrated both language and knowledge instruction, right? And um, to see effects, significant effects, even though they were quite small on these standardized measures was um, something that we don't see in the language intervention research. No. Now, but but just to clarify this, are are you suggesting that um, you were teaching kids words and and some knowledge and they they were showing evidence of knowing different words and different knowledge or or that, um, because that's very surprising if that's the case. Yes, and we want to dig in to, to more of the item level. Yeah. Um, in, uh, on, on the, compre- on the um, we didn't find the effects on listening comprehension. Yeah. Um, but we want to dig into the science measure to see if the items students tended to know was the science that they were taught in the yeah. curriculum, which would make a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, the, um, you know, this idea, but and we could dig into the, the vocabulary measure as well, but the vocabulary measure, it's unlikely that those would be as tied as perhaps the science measure. Um, the, I guess the, the, one of the points I want to um, kind of emphasize here is what we're seeing in this, not only this study, but also in other studies that are like it, 
um, that there have been a handful of studies in the K through two setting um, testing approaches. This is the only um, one of the only ones testing a commercially available, widely used approach yeah. or curriculum. But um, you do have other ones where there's actually a reading comprehension, um, out, uh, standardized reading comprehension improves in first grade. That's um, uh, Dr. Jimmy Kim's work out of Harvard. He was also a partner. He was a co-investigator on my study along with uh, Tom White of the University of Virginia. Um, so you have other approaches that have had impact on distal measures as our meta-analysis showed, um, which is very interesting because you wonder what is the mechanism that is helping that. And I think that's one of the areas I wanna push on in my own work is what is it about integrated instruction that might be giving you a bigger, a better bang for your buck, right? And might be, and also we have to keep in mind, like you said earlier, you have to be open to the ideas that, to the fact that your ideas might be falsifiable, right? You have to yeah. be able to falsify your ideas yeah. or provide alternate explanations. Yeah. You can't just go into something saying, a researcher does not go into something saying, this is the finding I want it and this is the finding I have to have. And, <laughs> you know, and then I'm going to sell my product that does it, you know, like that's not the research approach. You know, yeah. you had said that there are many people who will tell you what uh, you should do in the classroom. Yeah. The idea is here from a research perspective is what does the research say? And am I open to if it says what I don't want it to say? And you have to be open to that. Yeah. That's how we train our doctoral students. You have to be open to that. You can't just say, I'm going to come and prove this thing. That's not <laughs> research. Um, but all that to say is um, I'm interested in the mechanism by yeah. which this might be happening. And one of the one of the areas of my work has been around contexts which facilitate potentially richer language use by teachers and richer language modeling and language interactions with teachers and young children. And in some of my prior work, we found that the science context, teachers were actually having better, uh, more effective conversations around language modeling in the science context versus other contexts. So, there might be something about content areas which makes it a more facilitative context for language oh, development. That's so that's one of the mechanisms I think about. I also think motivation is another yeah. really terrific mechanism to think about. Because if I'm motivated to learn about something, I might be also motivated to go and learn about other things. Absolutely. So um, we've said that we shouldn't just stand up and tell people what to do, but um, I'm now gonna <laughs> uh, pose the following question. So say you're a, um, you're a teacher, uh, in a school with a two-hour uh, literacy block, you're currently doing um, lots of uh, slightly random uh, texts, lots of reading comprehension strategies. You're listening to this podcast. You're thinking, "I want to make a few steps." So you've got um, you, you've got the ability to to change what you're doing in your classroom, as many teachers do, because many teachers operate quite uh, independently. Um, what steps would you um, suggest? Um, tentatively <laughs> suggest they should consider? Well, I think um, that um, some of those core features of, of these content-rich English language arts approaches um, that have cut across more than one study um, are the things that I would go with, which is planning units of study around content concepts, um, using conceptually coherent text sets, 
So thinking about how those text sets build knowledge for children, explicitly teaching categorical relationships among words and really thinking through what kinds of words you're gonna teach them and how useful those words will be. And then whether you can deepen their content knowledge with those words. Um, and then making sure that your discussion and your writing also focus on content because you can build the same language and literacy skills while focusing on content. Um, so the integration of these approaches is, is uh, very much needed and I think is very based in the science. Okay, so I, I think that's be useful for people. Now, my final question, which is a variation of the question that I always ask, how evidence informed do you think that we are, and maybe you'll have to answer this in terms of the US context, but I think it probably transfers quite well. How, how evidence informed do you think we are in, in education? And what would you propose uh, as a way of uh, increasing the amount of um, evidence-informed practice in schools? I think we're making some headway in the last few years in that gap between what teachers know and do on the ground and what the science says, but I still think we have a ways to go. I think, um, I, I think that schools of education need to make sure that they are training teachers to understand what the science says about reading instruction so that they feel equipped and that teachers have ongoing training um, to build their expertise. You know, I also think that providing teachers with curricula that are research, not only research-based, that means not only have been informed by research, yeah. but also are tested themselves yeah. is important. And, um, and, I, and, I, and so I, I think that um, together, both the curriculum as well as improving teachers' knowledge so that then their own expertise to help the children in their context, I think is a, is a winning solution. Thank you. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you, uh, Sonia. Um, hopefully we'll talk again at some point. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Greg. I really appreciate it.